chapter 41. If you're using the Pew Bibles provided, that is on page 39 as we go through our life of Joseph. Uh, We've been looking through the life of Joseph for several weeks now in our series called Meant for Good. And for Joseph, so far, things have gone from bad to worse to worse to worse. Um, Joseph started out, he, well, he, he started out doing okay. You know, you study the life of Joseph and you say, here he is, he is his father's favorite son. He's uh, an important, powerful man. You know, he's, he's protected, he's 17 years old, but he's, been the, he's become the supervisor of his brothers. Um, but of course, then he brings back an evil report to his brothers and his brothers start to hate him. As time goes by, he has some dreams where God reveals to him that his brothers are going to bow down to him. And as he tells his brothers about these dreams, his brothers hate him more and more and more. Finally, his brothers say, let's kill him. So Joseph comes out one day, walks to his brothers. He's sent out to go check on his brothers. When he gets toward them, he finds out that they're not in the place where they were supposed to be. Someone says, well, they went over here. So he goes to find his brothers. When he gets there, they see him coming, and they say, behold, this dreamer comes. Let's throw him into a pit, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. As Joseph comes then, he is approached by his brothers. They take him. They rip his coat of many colors off and throw him into a pit to die. Meanwhile, though, a group of Egyptian traders come by. And when they come by, Joseph's brothers see him and they say, do you know what's even better than just killing our brother? We could make a profit off of this deal. Let's sell him into slavery to the Midianites. So the Midianites swept him up. His brothers took the money, uh, took the coat of many colors, put goat blood on it to convince their father that Joseph had been ripped to shreds. And then their brother, Joseph, was carried off to become a slave in Egypt. You say, well, that's pretty bad. But as we read in the Bible, the Lord was with Joseph. God was with Joseph, and so he starts to build up in the house of the man that he's working in, Potiphar's house, the police chief of Egypt. Um, As he lifts up in Potiphar's house, it gets to the point where it says, Potiphar only was concerned about the food that he ate. Everything else was Joseph's. And things go okay for a while. Until, of course, Potiphar's wife sees Joseph and is consumed by lust and says, Oh, Joseph, lie with me. Joseph says, No, I can't commit this great sin against God. Your husband has trusted me with everything. I can't do it. She persists day after day after day after day until finally, in the course of his normal duties, he is in the house with Potiphar's wife by himself. As we've talked about, uh, being, in the, being somewhere alone with someone of the opposite sex who is not your spouse is a bad idea. And, of course, jo- uh, Potiphar's wife says, lie with me again to Joseph. Joseph says no. She grabs him by the shirt, pulls his shirt off, and Potiphar goes running out of the house. Pot- uh, Joseph goes running out of Potiphar's house. As he runs out of Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife develops a plan. And so once she's come with her plan, she screams. When someone comes in, she says, that Hebrew slave tried to rape me. I can't believe, to the, other, to the slaves, my husband has brought him in to mock us like this. 
Joseph is thrown into prison. He's not executed, which was the normal punishment, of course, for attempted rape, because Potiphar knows better. Potiphar doesn't believe that Joseph would do anything like that. There's not, the credibility's not there. But still, Joseph goes down into the prison. He's in the prison, we don't know how long. But we will find out is that if you add his time as a slave plus his time in prison, it's 13 years. He's in prison for we don't know how long, but at a certain point, he has worked his way up to be the leader of the prison. He's the assistant warden. He's the first trustee in history. And so he's serving the other prisoners, and he ends up serving two royal prisoners, a a butler and a baker. They both have a dream. They both have their own dream. And Joseph comes up to them and says, hey, what's wrong? They say, oh, we've had this dream, and we cannot figure out what it means. The butler says, I had this dream where I squeezed three bunches of grapes into Pharaoh's cup. And Joseph says, that's because in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift your head up and you are going to go and serve as his butler again. The baker says, oh, that sounds great. He says, I had this dream where I had three baskets of bread on my head I was carrying and the birds were coming and picking them. And Joseph says, Pharaoh has found you out. He is going to lift your head up by hanging you, and the birds are going to peck the flesh off your head in three days. Joseph tells the butler, when you return to your seat of authority, remember me. I don't deserve to be here. I was kidnapped from my country. I haven't done anything wrong. Remember that I helped you, and when you're back in Pharaoh's court, help me. And, of course, the butler says, sure thing. But how many of you know that uh, a lot of friends you have when you're on the bottom are not your friends when the roles are switched? So the butler went back up to his position of authority, and the butler forgot Joseph. Now, that leads us today to Joseph's great rising up. Our uh, title today is Surviving Success. Because Joseph has done very well in various kinds of suffering. Joseph uh, showed his character in Potiphar's house. He showed his character in prison. He even showed his character by patiently waiting when the butler forgot about him. But there's one thing we need to know, and it's that sometimes good things test our character more than suffering. Sometimes success is the most dangerous thing if you do not have the character to hold it up. Um, as I was trying to think this, uh, as I was studying for this and thinking through this and trying to think of a, an illustration of someone who was doing really well until they were ruined by success that their character was not able to handle. I kept looking and trying to cope with somebody, and then it comes flashes on my newsfeed. Johnny Manziel enrolls at A&M again. I'm like, well, there's my illustration, okay? You have somebody who um, can do anything he wants, Right, goes to Texas A&M and does well there and gets the Heisman Trophy his first year as a freshman, you know, and then un, unimaginably successful. The year after he got that, his coach got, I think, a $100,000 raise. They start to build this new stadium for one purpose, to showcase Johnny Football. He plays there another year and starts to get into trouble. He doesn't get to play so much. Um, his dad did an interview with ESPN where he talked about how much he worried about the destruction that would happen if his son didn't grow up. Well, if you uh, have turned on the news lately, you know his son did not grow up. Went to go play 
uh, well, he went to go play in Cleveland and uh, didn't get to play a whole lot and was released. He blew it. What was it that made him blow it? Well, in his Heisman acceptance speech, you know, where he was a hero, uh, to, even if you don't care about football, he beat Oklahoma. That got to count for something. This is a Texas crowd. You don't have to know much about football to know you don't like Oklahoma. So he, in his acceptance speech, he said, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And he said, I always try to do that. But then the temptations of success come in. And how easy is it to forget God once you think you've got everything you need? How easy is it to say, okay, God, thank you for getting me this far. I've got it from here. You probably pray all over your checkbook a whole lot more when it doesn't add up than when it does. When you feel like you don't need to balance your checkbook because there's going to be plenty, you, may, you don't pray a whole lot. When you look at it and you, it's starting to get little negatives there and you start figuring out, okay, if I deposit the check, how, when do I have to deposit the check so it'll go in before this other check goes out and I won't pay my overdraft fees? When you start thinking like that, you start praying. We forget God when we're successful. Even if we remembered him when we, were in the, when we were in trouble. So Joseph today is about to face a temptation that he hasn't really had to face before. He has to face the temptation of success. He has to face the temptation of greatness. And so the real test of Joseph's character will be when he doesn't need God anymore, as it seems, will he still turn to God? So, verse 1, we're going to read them. We're going to skip down to verse 7 because there's a lot of material here. But I just want to give you this. And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed, and behold, he stood by the river. Okay. Two, two years the butler has forgotten about Joseph. Two years, and he does not remember him at all. And then Pharaoh has a dream. I just want you to imagine Joseph sitting in prison for two years imagining his best chance for getting him. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I might not want my character to be judged by me sitting and seething in a jail cell about being betrayed for two years. I might not be the person that I ought to be after that. It's a real test. So Joseph sits there, and he waits. And Pharaoh has this dream Verse 8, if you jump down just a little bit. And it came to pass in the morning after his dream that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men thereof. And Pharaoh told them his dream. But there was none that could interpret them unto Pharaoh. Pharaoh has these two dreams uh, back to back. He calls together all the expert dream interpreters of Egypt. And he says, can you tell me what this dream means? I say, we've got no idea. Now, then, verse 9, spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults this day. Pharaoh was wroth with his servants and put me in ward in the captain of the guard's house, both me and the chief baker. And we dreamed a dream in one night, I and he. We dreamed each man according to the interpretation of his dream. And there was with us a young man, a Hebrew, servant to the captain of the guard. 
And we told him, and he interpreted to us our dreams. To each man according to his dream he did interpret. And it came to pass, as he interpreted to us, so it was. So it was. Me he restored into mine office, and him he hanged. So the butler says, I now, I remember my sin. When I was in prison before, there was a man, a Hebrew man named Joseph, who knew the answer to my dream, and it happened just like he said. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. And he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. So Pharaoh doesn't waste any time. He's tried everything else. It doesn't hurt. So he says, somebody go get Joseph. They change Joseph's clothes. They shave his face. Um, Hebrews, of course, grew their beards out. They still do. You know, uh, uh, Orthodox Jewish people still grow their beards out. They don't trim the corners of their beards. Um, but Egyptians, if you've ever seen paintings of Egyptians, pictures of King Tut and different things, they shave except for this royal part here. Um, you know, and so you, you see that in pictures. Um, the, so that, that was all they had on their face. So the servants would be clean-shaven. The pharaoh would have the small, um, the, 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 the small beard. So he shaves, Joseph shaves his face, he goes, he changes his clothes, he comes to Pharaoh. And I do want to very quickly point out to you, this is kind of a reversal of what had happened before, isn't it? He was thrown into the pit, but first they took off his nice clothes. You know, they ripped off his coat of many colors. But what was taken away from him is now given back. Um, when we think about Joseph, I've told you before, Joseph is kind of a distant shadow of Jesus. Uh, Joseph's brother Judah is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. And you know, when Jesus was hung on the cross, they ripped his clothes off of him and they gambled for his clothes. In Joseph's life, he had his coat taken, his coat of many colors taken. He had his uh, shirt ripped off by Potiphar's wife. He's, been, he's constantly had these things taken away. And Jesus had his own garment uh, taken off. But just as then uh, Jesus is now clothed in glory, uh, Joseph gets something new. So Joseph's dressed, he's ready to go. He goes in unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. Joseph, Pharaoh says, I had this dream. Nobody knows what it means, and I've heard that you know what dreams mean. You know, again, you imagine if you were in Joseph's shoes. See, if I were Joseph, and uh, Pharaoh says, I bet, you know, I've heard that you understand dreams. If I were Joseph, I would say, I bet you heard it probably from that ungrateful butler. That's probably who told you that. Sometimes you feel the need to sort of inject something like that. I'm glad that I'm here now, but it sure took two years. I almost imagine, you know, the butler was there. He was a major official in Pharaoh's court. So I don't know for sure, but I imagine the butler was there, kind of looking at his shoes and everything. Yeah, you've heard that, Pharaoh. <laughs> but Joseph doesn't act like that. Joseph doesn't say, yes, I did this. I did all this for the butler, and now he forgot about me. Have you ever said anything like that? After everything I've done for them, how could they? I know nobody here has ever said anything like that. Maybe you know somebody that said something like that. I just, I don't know how. You do this and this and this for this person, and then they just treat you like. Joseph doesn't act like that. Joseph 
knows that what he did was never about him, and it was never about the butlers. He knows that his life is not his own. He says, Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now, it is true, Joseph had interpreted the dreams. And in fact, Joseph didn't, there's no description when Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. He goes, he prays, he goes to bed, he wakes up, he knows the meaning. Joseph doesn't do anything like that. Joseph just answers, you know. So there is a sense in which God has given him the ability to interpret dreams. And he can say, yes, I am Joseph, the dream interpreter. But he won't talk like that. Here's the test of success. When you have success, who do you attribute your success to? There's a, a funny thing about human beings. Um, we are eager to take the credit for success and will not touch the responsibility for failure with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> now, that's not the way we treat other people. It's really interesting, isn't it? When somebody else makes a mistake, it's, well, I just, yeah, I knew they would do that. I knew you couldn't count on them anyway. When somebody else is successful, well, they sure got lucky, didn't they? Here's what we do. Let's say that um, you are running late. I say, well, they just don't really care about other people's time. They're just not considerate at all. When you do something wrong, it's based on your character. When I do something wrong, well, you know, there was a lot of traffic here on uh, 2004, and I got stuck. When I make a mistake, I blame it on my circumstances. And when you make a mistake, I blame it on your character. When you're successful, if I don't like you, I give the credit to your circumstances. You look at a business and say, well, they were just in the right industry at the right time, right place, right time. Everything just worked out. Isn't that wonderful? Bless their little heart. But when I'm successful, I say, what, they say, well, what made you successful? You don't say, well, you know, we just got caught in the industry. Well, hard work and perseverance, grit. I give the credit for my success to my character. And I blame my failures on my circumstances. I blame other people's failures on their, on their uh, character and credit their successes to their circumstances. It's this double standard that we hold ourselves to. But Joseph, when things are good and when things are bad, says, God's got the answers, not me. That's the test of success. That's how you'll determine if you can survive success or not. Let me make this clear. I am not tempted to pride when you are successful. You know, I, don't, I don't look at you and say, wow, you know, they sure have made a lot of money and just get filled up with pride. It's when I attach that success to myself that temptation comes in. So if I attach my successes to God, then I can glory and be excited about the successes that happen without filling up my own heart with sinful pride. In the same way, when I fail, if I say, you know, God's in control, God still sits enthroned in the heavens, and this is not out of hand, then I will not fall into despair. Woe is me, the world is ending, you know, and we've talked before, uh, that kind of self-loathing is still another form of pride. Uh, when I go around saying how great I am all the time, that's pride because I'm thinking about myself all the time. When I go around all the time thinking about how terrible I am, that's pride because I think about myself all the time. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis said pride is not, uh, no. C.S. Lewis said humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. You see, I'm not the center of everything. So Joseph says, God will give you the interpretation. He'll give you an answer of peace, an answer of prosperity. He's going to give you the answer that will bring peace to your kingdom and peace to your heart. And of course, as Christians, I hope that is near and dear to us. So as we, as we go on here in the very next verse, verse 17, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, In my dream, behold, I stood upon the bank of the river. Now this is important. Uh, he's standing on the Nile River. In Egypt, one thing you need to know about Egypt, it does not rain much. In Egypt, there's hardly any rain. So how do they water their crops? Well, the Nile River floods all the time. And when the Nile River floods, it deposits water. One thing, it irrigates water out. The other thing that it does is it deposits sediment that makes the soil fertile. Um, so they were very dependent on the flooding, this flood uh, release cycle. So it would flood, they'd farm in those areas, and then they would flood again, and they'd farm in those areas. And so Egypt was very prosperous. But everything they had depended on the Nile River. And so while Canaanites, for example, worshipped uh, Baal, who was the god of storms, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. And if something didn't go well, it meant the Nile River was mad at them. And if something went well, it meant the Nile River was happy with them. So they'd make sacrifices to the fertility goddess of the Nile River and different things. Now, why is that important? Well, this is made more clear in Exodus, uh, where God fights against the Egyptian gods, metaphorically. Because what does God do? What's the first plague? The Nile River turns into blood. And so the, Moses comes in and says, this one that you worship that you think is your deliverer, my God speaks. And it's contaminated, it's destroyed. Even here now, Pharaoh stands on the Nile River. He says, what does this dream at the river mean? And all of his magicians of the Nile do not have the answers for him. But Joseph of the God of Israel knows the answer. It's just one thing here, the one true God. So he says, I've got this dream. I stood upon the bank of the river. And behold, there came out of the river seven kind, fat-fleshed and well-favored, and they fed in a meadow. And behold, seven other kind came up after them, poor and very ill-favored and lean-fleshed, such as I never saw in all the land of Egypt for badness. He said, I saw seven cows come up, these fat-fleshed, healthy Texan cows, and then these lean, weak Oklahoma cows came up behind it. So I had this dream, and he said, I have never seen seven such sickly cows. Because airfare was very expensive from Egypt to Oklahoma at the time. So he said, I see these seven healthy cows followed by seven half-dead cows. And he says, And the lean and ill-favored kind did eat up the first seven fat kind. And when they had eaten them up, it could not be known that they had eaten them. But they were still ill-favored, as it was at the beginning. So I awoke. says, The seven skinny Oklahoma cows eat the seven fat longhorn Texas cows. But they're still just as skinny and just as half dead as they were when they started. And he said he woke up. And, uh, you know, if it, 
Of course, the Egyptians took their dreams very seriously. Uh, if you had a dream like that, you'd probably roll back over and say, what did I have for dinner, right? But the Egyptians took it, the Egyptians took it very, very seriously. And so they, he, he rolled, but he went back to sleep, and he had another dream. He said, I saw in my dream, and behold, seven ears came up in one stalk, full and good. And behold, seven ears, withered, thin, and blasted with the east wind, sprung up after them. And the thin ears devoured the seven good ears. And I told this unto the magicians, but there was none that could declare it to me. So I had, okay, I had another dream. And this dream, there was seven big, ripe, healthy corn. And then there was this rotten corn. The rotten corn ate the healthy corn. And then I woke up. And he said, and I've been asking everybody, what does this mean? And nobody knows. Now, of course, Pharaoh knows there must be some kind of deeper meaning. Cows don't eat cows. Corn doesn't eat other corn. But he said, nobody can tell me the meaning of this dream. Now, again, you look at it, and maybe you're familiar enough with the story that you think the, the meaning is pretty straightforward. Um, Maybe it is. But can you imagine, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was a god. Can you imagine coming and bringing bad news to the one that you think is your god? They're kind of nervous about the whole thing. They know the kind of person Pharaoh is. He's the kind of person who, when the butler and the baker, both, when he knows one of them sinned, he throws them both into jail. You can imagine the magician saying, well, I don't want, telling the magicians, I don't want to hear this. Get out of here. So maybe they're afraid. We don't know what it was, but we know that somehow God arranged it where nobody else could give the interpretation of this dream. And so Joseph had to be called up. Now what I want you to see there too is that if the butler had not sinned, if he had remembered Joseph right away, Joseph would have been back in Israel for two years before Pharaoh ever had this dream. See, God uses even the wrong things that people do for your good. You say, oh, how can, how can that work? You know, and, I, and maybe it's, it's beyond our comprehension exactly how it works. But God knows the wrong things that people will do, and he sets up the circumstances. So even though he doesn't cause those things, he uses them to accomplish his purposes. So Joseph, you know, we go through that again. If, the, if his brothers had been where they were supposed to be, Joseph would not have been near the Egyptian caravan that carried him into slavery. If he had not uh, accidentally one day been alone in Potiphar's house with Potiphar's wife, he never would have been thrown into prison and met the baker and the butler. If he hadn't seen their faces looking downcast, he never would have been able to interpret their dreams. And if the butler had not forgotten him, he never would have interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And if you know the meaning of this dream already, you know that if he had done that, then he and his entire family would have died. Jesus never would have been born, and there would be no hope for us at all. So God works out every tiny detail to make things how it needs to be. So he says here in verse 28, this is the thing, I'm sorry, I went too far. Verse 25, And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. God hath showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
See, that word is, uh, that word about to do is imminent. It's, uh, he's on the verge of doing. You know, you might say he's fixing to do. God has shown Pharaoh what is just about to happen. You've had two dreams, but they just have one meaning. He says, the seven good kind are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dream is one. And the seven thin and ill-favored kind that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blasted with the east wind shall be seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh. What God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. The, there's two sevens represent seven years, just like the threes in the other dreams represented three days, because God is giving Pharaoh a glimpse into the future. Behold, verse 29, there come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, and there shall arise after them seven years of famine. And all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land. And the plenty shall not be known in the land by reason of that famine following it, for it shall be very grievous. He said, just like when the seven scrawny cows ate the seven healthy cows and they didn't look any better, that these seven years of famine are going to be so bad, nobody's going to remember the good times. There's going to be seven years of feast and seven years of famine. So that's a very long time. But their life was so dependent on the Nile River, they were always in drought. And so if the Nile River doesn't flood like it's supposed to, there's death, 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 death. Now, if we lived, if there was a shortage of food for seven years for us, we knew something was coming, we would have uh, canned goods, we'd have freezers, we'd have different things like that. In Egypt, your, the, um, the kinds of things that you can store up against a famine are pretty limited. So you better know it's coming with some advance notice so you can start drying out grain and building storehouses and preparing things. But God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. So one thing we need to understand here is that even though the Egyptians believed Pharaoh was a god, God was the one who had to tell Pharaoh what was going to happen. The second thing is that the ancient world, they believed that there was a God who was a God of this part, and a God who was a God of this part, and a God who was a God of this part. But the God of Israel has just as much power in Egypt as he does in Israel. He's got just as much power in the United States as he does in Egypt. You know, he's the same God all over. There's one God. And so all the things that happen depend on him. And Joseph is willing to say that. Joseph is willing to say, the Lord has shown you what he's about to do. So again, I ask you, when you're faced with that kind of a temptation, you know, standing before someone like Pharaoh, do you have the boldness to survive success? As we go on here, he says, he, he, and for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. It is because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. He says, it, you had the dream twice because it's going to happen soon, and there is no changing it. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Joseph now starts uh, forth-telling. So a lot of times when we think about prophecy, we think about somebody telling the future. In the Bible, most prophecy is not telling the future. Prophecy means speaking for God. 
Okay, so there were three offices in the Old Testament. If you imagine God up top, um, a prophet was someone who spoke from God to the people. That's the first anointed office. A king was somebody who judged between people. You got man, man, God. Prophet comes down from God to men. King goes from man to man. Priest goes from man to God. Brings up the sacrifices and the prayers of man to God. Okay? So prophet comes from God to man. King goes from man to man. Uh, Priest goes from man to God. Those are the basic Old Testament offices. We call Jesus the Christ. Christ means anointed one because Jesus was the prophet who came and brought God down to people. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he's the great high priest who gives us access to God. So Jesus is prophet and priest and king, okay? So prophecy is not just telling the future. Most of the prophecies in the Bible are not about the future. They're about what God says to do right now. And the telling the future was said, you can believe this is true. You can believe you should do this right now because God's going to prove that he's God by telling the future. So he says, there's seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, and that's the future. But what's more important is what you need to do now because you know God knows what will happen. So he tells him to look for an intelligent and wise man to set over the land of Egypt. Uh, you know, you want somebody who's both, discreet, intelligent, and wise. Uh, sometimes you get somebody who's intelligent but not wise, um, and that can be a disaster. Somebody who's wise but not intelligent is a little better, but you want somebody with both. He says you need somebody who has the understanding of the situation and the wisdom to know what to do about it, and you need to set him over this problem. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land, and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. He says, let the, set somebody over this problem, let him appoint people under him to divide the work up, and then take a 20% tax on everything in the land of Egypt for the seven plenteous years. The idea, of course, is that there was going to be so much wealth during that seven years that a 20% tax wouldn't mean anything to them at all. They've got plenty. And so during that time, he takes a fifth of everything. And as we, we see here, And let them gather all the food of those good years that come and lay up the corn under the hand of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. And that food shall be for store in the land against the the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through the famine. And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Now, this is not a perfect translation. The Spirit of God is on, is what it ought to say. The Holy Spirit didn't indwell people until Pentecost. But I want you to understand, he's saying God is with him. He says, we could search the whole land of Egypt, and we will not find anyone better than this one who has the Spirit of God with him. What that means to you is that as a Christian, if God is with you, then it doesn't matter what your natural abilities are. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter anything. God will never send you anywhere he does not equip you. Somebody, you know, God lays on your heart, you need to be doing something. You say, well, I just don't know that I'm smart enough or good enough or brave enough or whatever. There is no one better for any task than the one the Spirit of God is on for that task. 
Just like the Spirit of God was on the face of the waters in creation, now the Spirit of God is on Joseph, the created. And just now, as the Spirit of God came down on Jesus when he was baptized, God comes and he prepares people for service today. God prepared Joseph for this moment, and even Pharaoh recognized it. When God has got his hand on you, there is nothing that can keep that from being successful. Maybe not successful in the way we measure success. That's the real trick, isn't it? If we've learned one thing from the life of Joseph, it's that success is not always what we think success is. But the Spirit of God was on him. And so Pharaoh says, there's no one better than this one. You can find no one better qualified than the one the Spirit of God is on. So as we, as we go then just to this last little bit, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. He says, Joseph, there's no one one wiser or smarter than you because God's with you. So you will be the ruler of my people, and only in the throne will I be greater than you. See, in, the, in Potiphar's house, he had everything except Potiphar's most intimate things. Now, as the prime minister of Egypt, the only one above him is Pharaoh himself. Now, as we look, he says, and Pharaoh said, uh, said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, Bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That's what he says. You ride in my second chariot. You know, you come up behind me. And as you come up behind me, everyone will have to bow down to you. So you can imagine he goes through the, where all the, butler, where all the butlers are. The butler who forgot him bows down. They come up on Potiphar's house and Joseph says, slow down a little bit. Everyone in all the land of Egypt has to bow down before Joseph. He becomes the most powerful man in the land. He wears Pharaoh's ring for making signatures. He wears Pharaoh's clothes. He's got this gold chain. He travels in Pharaoh's style. He has now been basically adopted by Pharaoh into the royal family because he was with God, because he trusted God. Now, if this does not make you think of something else, then I don't know what to do with you. There's a story Jesus told. He told the story about a man who had two sons. The younger son said, Father, give me my inheritance. Now I just cannot wait on you to die. The father, being quite unlike my own father, said, okay. Sold everything and gave his share to the younger son. The younger son went off, and what do we know? He wasted all his substance on riotous living. He blew it. And this prodigal son goes from being so successful 
to being nothing in this foreign land. He sits one day, he's feeding pigs. He looks at the pig slop and he says, boy, I sure would like to eat some of that. Then the Bible says, he came to himself. He said, the servants in my father's house have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go unto my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. He goes back home. He comes to his father, and while he was yet afar off, his father saw him and ran to him. Okay? You understand, you are the prodigal son. God gave you everything you have, and you blew it. You wasted it in sin. You were off, enslaved to your sin, helpless in a foreign land. But when you come to yourself and you say, Father, I have sinned in your sight, and I am not worthy to be called your son. That's repentance. You say, God, I deserve your punishment. I do not deserve to be your child. But here I am. What did the father do? He ran to the son. Of course, old men didn't run. Right? They wore these long things. They had to lift it up to run, very undignified, the old man legs out. They didn't do that. But he ran to his son. He took him up in his arms. And he said, get the ring and put it on his finger. The ring so he can do business on behalf of the family. He is my representative. Get the best robe. Who would the best robe belong to? Nobody but his father. Clothe him in that. Get him shoes for his feet. Just like Pharaoh was redressed, he was given a chariot to rule over Egypt, the prodigal son is set up to rule. You, when you become a Christian, are set up by God to be his vice regent. And then, of course, he said, and kill the fatted calf. For this, my son, who was dead, is alive again. He was lost, and now is found. You can be a success. You can survive success if you say everything I have is on loan from God. And this morning, if you've wandered far from God, if you're in the depths of the pit, through your own choice or not, if you're willing to say, Lord, I have sinned against you, but I believe that Jesus died in my place. Forgive me. God will lift you up higher than Pharaoh ever lifted up to Let's stand. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. We're going to give you this chance to respond, get right with God. You know, Joseph is this powerful picture of Jesus. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. And because Joseph recognized that, he was fine. Luke, we read, he who is faithful in little will also be faithful in little. If you are faithful to God now, then in success you will still be faithful to him. As we say, page 126.